We'll be reading from uh, the book of Philemon, which is on page 1000 in your pew Bibles. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our brother, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Agrippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." For this, perhaps, is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your prayer, receive him as you would receive me. I'm sorry. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Say nothing of you, your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we praise you for the announcement, the arrival that we remember and celebrate today of the return of the king to Jerusalem, claiming your rightful throne. And Lord, we know because we're looking back what direction that week was going. We know how the celebration of your arrival would turn to shouts of condemnation later in the week. And yet we know too that that was all according to plan. That you and your mercy came to rescue us. 
that you came to reconcile to yourself sinners, rebels. And we praise you for that, Lord. And we pray as we look into your word this morning that we would see the power of your reconciliation at work even among ourselves, God, as we consider this letter. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, uh, this week we had the privilege of purchasing our first home and we moved into it yesterday. Uh, It's a great joy. We're exhausted. uh, But... uh, and we're incredibly thankful because none of that would have really happened uh, without this congregation. Uh, the move yesterday, Saturday night, or excuse me, Friday night, Carissa and I, about 1230, were sitting there thinking, uh, there is no way, we're going to have to push off the move a whole other week because this is just, we were not ready. We thought we were going to be ready and it just wasn't happening. And... Uh, the army swooped in Saturday morning, and it was glorious to watch this not you know this uh, caravan of I think seven or eight minivans and trucks and stuff driving down the road and uh, people helping out clean and paint. We were very overwhelmed by the love of this congregation. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, we're very blessed. Uh, it's mildly terrifying to make a commitment, a purchase like that. Uh, Many of you have had that experience. And yet, as we, you know, stood on the front porch Wednesday uh, with the kids after we got the keys and everything and had a time of prayer together as a family, it was really exciting, too, to kind of start this new chapter uh, together. It was a special time. Uh, And yet, you know, when you think about a family home, a family house, uh, the sad reality is that what can be a very joyful and bonding experience when your children are young can so easily become a point of division and jealousy and anger's and anger years down the road when it comes time to divide the estate and all of a sudden what was at one point a playground for children becomes a battleground over who gets what and how much and you know, we, I think any, everyone in this room knows of stories or has perhaps lived that story in some way. Uh, I watched a, a family in my hometown you know, go from lawsuit to lawsuit among siblings. And when they would settle out of court with one, they'd move on to the next one. And when they didn't get what they wanted out of that, they sued the accountant who divided the state evenly. And when they lost that lawsuit, they sued the lawyer who lost the lawsuit. And so just this... Uh, viciousness of, of what was, you know, this special thing, and it, and it becomes this this battleground. I, I talked with an estate planner this week, and he estimated that around 60% of the estates that he works on involve some sort of family conflict and negotiating, and about 10% of those result in litigation among siblings. That's not how families are supposed to work, is it? Uh, I mean, families are supposed to love each other and get along and forgive each other and not let things like that come between them. But families are capable of hurting each other in very deep ways. Uh, Siblings can wrong one another. Uh, We're obviously praying against all of this as we start this new chapter. 
Um, but it can happen. Conflict happens even in the closest of bonds, even in and among families. And the church as a family is no exception to that. So the question then becomes, what do we do when that happens? Whether it's in our own families or within the body of Christ as a whole, the, the family that is the church. What do we do when someone that we see every week has stolen from us in the past? Or lied to us or somehow betrayed us? Broken a promise or misunderstood us or dismissed our ideas? slandered us or offended us with something that they said? Is there any recourse when the family breaks down like that? When the church family breaks down? Is there any hope in those kinds of situations? And though it's not easy or simplistic, the answer, thankfully, is yes. There is. And as you might guess, that answer is the gospel. The good news of Jesus. We we've been talking about how the gospel of Christ is universally relevant. It applies to every aspect of life. Uh, it's not that, you know, we believe the gospel when we become a Christian and then we move on from it to other things as we grow. It's rather that the Christian life is an ongoing journey of believing the good news of Jesus in deeper and deeper ways and applying it to every aspect of life, to every relationship we have in life. Our personal lives, to our families, to our work, to our school. And as we've been talking about at this point in the series, we apply the gospel even right here in the church. What does it look like to be shaped by the gospel as a congregation? Most of us don't have a problem believing that what Christ did on the cross was powerful enough to reconcile us to God. To forgive our sins and to restore that broken, rela- that broken relationship. We have a much harder time believing that the same cross is powerful enough to reconcile us to each other. That's a leap of faith sometimes when we've been hurt deeply by people that we loved and trusted. But that is exactly what Paul's arguing in this book, this letter. This is his shortest and most personal letter. It kind of feels like reading somebody else's mail when you're when you're reading this. This is a this is a letter uh, by Paul to a very close friend of his, uh, a wealthy man named Philemon or Philemon, however one pronounces that. And uh, it was written. about the same time as the to the Colossians. In fact, most likely uh, Philemon is part of the Colossian church. You see the same names in the book of Colossians that you see in Philemon. And it was probably sent together with that letter. So Colossians being written to the general congregation and Philemon specifically to, uh, this, situa- to this man in this situation. And what Paul's doing in this letter is he's taking things that he's argued in other letters about the sufficiency of Christ and the supremacy of Christ, letters specifically like Colossians. He's taking those arguments and he's applying it to a very specific issue 
between this wealthy man named Philemon and a conflict that he's had with a former slave of his named Onesimus, who somehow wronged Philemon and fled. Now, we're not told what that conflict was. Uh, We're not told what he did or why. Verse 18 seems to indicate that he has some sort of debt to his former master. Perhaps he stole from him. We don't know for sure. We're not told whether he fled uh, as a runaway slave type thing or whether he went looking for somebody to advocate in the conflict. We don't know why he left. We are told that sometime after he left, he met an apostle named Paul. And Paul shared the gospel of Jesus with him, and Onesimus became a Christian. He became a believer in Jesus. And it's as a Christian that Paul is now returning him to his former master, Philemon, with an appeal for reconciliation. That's the situation that he's addressing. Now, whenever we uh, run into social injustice issues like slavery, it's really easy to get distracted by that, by our questions about that. And there are great questions one might ask about all of that. Uh, But it's easy to let that issue distract us from what Paul is trying to say as his main point. Howard University professor Kane Felder, I think, reminds us helpfully that the close study of this text makes clear that Paul's primary focus is not on the ancient institution of slavery in, in, in the first century world, but on the power of the gospel to transform human relationships and bring about reconciliation. That's the subject. That's the content here. Paul's appeal is for reconciliation, restored relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, between master and slave, because as Paul writes elsewhere in Colossians 3.11, in Christ... There is neither slave nor free, but Christ is all and is in all. And so that relationship is no longer the defining feature of these two men. Paul is asking Philemon to extend forgiveness for whatever it is Onesimus has done. He's asking him to cancel the debt of Onesimus' sin, foregoing retribution, and extending family love in place of revenge. That's what he's asking. He's asking a lot. He's asking a lot. And anyone who has been in a situation where you've been sinned against seriously, or perhaps sinned against someone in a a deep way, you know what Paul's asking. And it's nothing small. The pain that's caused. And and so the question is, how is he making this request? What posture does he take? What attitude does he take as he tries to persuade Philemon to respond to his new brother with forgiveness of love? What posture does he take? And then what basis does he appeal to? On what grounds does he base his request that that he would forgive him and be reconciled and and how does that help us as we think about 
the times when we find ourselves in this exact same situation, uh, having been wronged or being the one who's done wrong, how does this, and in Paul's appeal here, help us think through approaching conflict in the church family, in our own families, um, or even, you know, as we find ourselves in Paul's shoe, kind of advocating between two parties who are who are at odds with one another. How do I help them in a way that's going to be helpful and not cause problems? And so I think there's a lot we can learn from this letter here. Many ways, this letter has been called a test case for the reconciling power of the gospel. Does the gospel really have anything to say to conflict among God's people? So the first thing I want to look at is is the posture of reconciliation. What attitude, what posture do we take as we approach someone? And four things that I think we can notice about Paul here. First, his humility. When Paul is asking for reconciliation, he takes a posture of humility and even vulnerability in his advocacy. We see that as early as verse 1, the very first verse there. Paul introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ. And that may seem kind of like a throwaway, but it's interesting because this is the only letter where he does that. Most of the time when he starts out a letter, he refers to himself as an apostle of Christ or bondservant of Christ. And, And he certainly refers and mentions his imprisonment in other letters, but never does he start out of the chute as this is the this is the identity marker you need to have in mind when you listen to what I'm about to say. I am a prisoner for Christ. And not only does he start it there, he mentions his imprisonment three more times in this short little letter. In verse 9, as he begins to kind of frame his appeal... He goes out of his way to make sure, make it clear that, that he is doing this. He's asking this, quote, as an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So Paul is assuming a posture of humility in his appeal. He's not standing on his authority as an apostle over top of Philemon, but coming under him as a prisoner, as a in weakness, from a position of humility and vulnerability, identifying himself with the vulnerable position of Onesimus. He's assuming the same posture as the man he's advocating for. So first, it's humility. Second, he appeals from a position of surrender. He lets go of control over the outcome of the situation. Now, it is, as you read the letter, it's, it's a little bit ironic how often Paul reminds Philemon that he could exert his rightful authority and tell him what to do if he wanted to. Uh, you know, in verse 8, for instance, he says, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you what to, do, to do what is required. Uh, he has the authority as an apostle to issue a command here and not an appeal. He could do it. Uh, similarly, in verse 19, Paul mentions that Philemon has some sort of debt to him. Presumably, Paul being the one who shared the gospel with him as well as Onesimus. Uh, He could, you know, invoke that debt. 
He could try and force the situation if he wanted to. But instead, he's appealing to Philemon. He wants that reconciliation to come not from compulsion, not from being forced, but out of Philemon's heart, which means he has to let go of control of the outcome. He can't force the situation. He says in um, verses 13 and 14, his deference here to Philemon. I would have been glad to to keep Onesimus with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be out of compulsion, but out of your own free will. I could, I could play the authority card here, but I am not going to because this needs to come from the heart. And that means I, I have to let go of the outcome. Paul surrenders control. Philemon is the offended party. Philemon must decide his own course of action in response. If it's going to be real and lasting. And so he appeals out of surrender. Third, Paul also appeals from a position of confidence that Philemon will, in fact, pursue the proper resolution. So, so he's, he's appealing out of weakness and, and humility and surrender, but he's also confident that the gospel will prevail in Philemon's heart. And you see that in verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. So he's letting go of control, but he's not letting go of hope. He believes that the gospel will work. And then fourth, Paul is not leaving Philemon without the support and accountability of the body. Again, it's interesting that in such a direct uh, personal letter, if you look again at the address in in the first couple of verses, that, that Paul has addressed the letter not only to Philemon, but also to Apphia, Archippus, and the church in his house. That's kind of interesting. Uh, And it shows you that these kinds of personal conflicts are never just personal. They affect the whole body when they happen in Christ's church. And it often requires the prayer and support and accountability of the body to see the resolution. And so Paul issues his appeal in the context of Christian community. We see in Paul's posture, I think, a remarkable balance of passion and humility. He is fully invested in the power of the gospel to change lives and reconcile God's people. But he also knows that it's not his place to make that happen. He can't force it. And again, I think there's a lot for us to learn from that as we think about the posture and position of of our own hearts, in how we think about and approach conflict. Whether we find ourselves, again, advocating between people or, or on one side of, of a conflict, we must hold firmly to the reconciling power of the gospel. We must allow the body to do its role of supporting and holding one another accountable. But we must relinquish control of the outcome. And let God do the work of changing hearts. You cannot manipulate 
reconciliation or force it. As one author summarizes, Paul does not seek to compel Philemon to obedience, but rather to allow him to reflect of the gospel and to act in accordance with it. So, not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to remind you what Christ has done and let you decide how to respond. That's what he's doing there. So if he's going to refuse to kind of exercise his apostolic authority and command him and force reconciliation, on what grounds does he actually appeal to him? What are the bases that Paul lays out when advocating for Onesimus? That's the second thing I want to look at in how Paul's handling the situation. And there are three different realities that Paul is appealing to. Three different realities he's basing his appeal on. All of which take their shape from the good news of Jesus. All of which take their shape from the gospel. And the first and the most essential foundation, the one that we need to make sure we clear, even if we forget everything else in the letter, is Philemon's common faith with Paul and Onesimus. They have a fellowship in the faith of Christ. They have a common faith together in Jesus. So that's the first basis that Paul appeals to. Verses 4 through 7. Go ahead and look at those in your Bibles. As Paul kind of, before he launches into what he's asking, he offers a prayer in his letter, verses 4 through 7. And he, as he prays and thanks God for Philemon and his incredible, uh, re- the relationship they have, the work, the, the, the reputation that Philemon has as a servant of the Lord, Paul's also laying the groundwork for what he's going to appeal to, specifically in what he's praying for in verse 6. That Philemon's fellowship in the faith would become effective for knowing every good thing that is among us for the sake of Christ. I pray that the sharing of your faith or sharing together in your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. He wants him to know the full benefits of the gospel of Jesus. Which implies that there are some good things that Philemon, despite his reputation, has yet to learn that come from the gospel. He has a great reputation of faith and love in verses 5 and 7, but there are some good things he's still missing out, some good fruit that the gospel can bear that he can put into practice, specifically the goodness of being reconciled with, with Onesimus. So his, his appeal is that he would know the full benefit of the gospel, but how he gets at that appeal can be confusing uh, because of the different translations we sometimes have of verse 6. Uh, how Paul wants Philemon to come to this understanding. Uh, The older NIV makes it kind of sound like that the key for Philemon to know all of these benefits is to be active in evangelism. Uh, In Philemon uh, 1.6 in the NIV, the older NIV says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. That to us is the way we talk about doing evangelism. Uh, But the word translated sharing here is a word uh, some of us might have heard before, koinonia. And it's a word that we usually translate as fellowship or partnership. 
or participation. And in the New Testament, it never actually has the sense of verbally explaining something to someone else on the outside. That's not what the word means. Rather, we share together in the faith as a family. That's more the picture. And so, as other English translations capture it, you know, we share in the faith or fellowship in the faith or we have partnership in the faith, as the newer NIV puts it. You can think about it. It's the difference between passing the rolls at the dinner table or handing bread out to homeless people on the street. Both are good things to do, but Paul's talking about the first one, the family table. And it's this sharing together in the faith that we have, the common faith in the gospel. That's what he hopes is going to help Philemon understand the full benefits of the gospel, every good thing that we have among us in Christ. He's appealing, in other words, for reconciliation on the fact that Philemon and Onesimus now have a common faith. They have partnership in the same faith. They have fellowship in the same faith in Christ. That's the foundation. Which means that this division, this conflict, whatever it was, is no longer merely an issue between a master and a slave. Now it's an issue, a matter between two brothers who are part of the same family. And Paul wants to see that changes things. This is not just a work dispute. This is a family matter. A family matter in the Lord. In fact, Paul uh, even mentions, before he even mentions Onesimus' name, he specifies that he has come to faith through Paul's ministry. He became my son during my imprisonment. I became his father. And now that Onesimus has come to faith, he is, Paul just talks about how useful he is in his ministry, which is kind of a play on words. Onesimus' name means useful. He was formerly useless. Now he's useful not only to Paul, but also to Philemon. He's changed by Christ. And that, therefore, changes things in Paul's appeal. Paul even describes him in in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 9, as, quote, a faithful and beloved brother. That's who Onesimus is now. And on the basis of that common faith, the fact that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, Paul wants and prays for Philemon to know the goodness of being reconciled with this man. Not just the goodness of partnering with Paul in his ministry, as he mentions that in verse 14. Not just the goodness of serving his brothers and sisters locally by refreshing their hearts, as he mentions in verse 7, but every goodness, the goodness of being reconciled. That is a fruit of the gospel that Paul does not want Philemon to miss out on. So that's what he prays for, and it's based on their common faith in Jesus. So that's the first foundation. The second is Christian love. So he appeals based on the fact that they are part of the same family in Christ. Now he appeals, second, on the basis of Christian love in verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, he had refrained from commanding him what to do. And so in verse 9, he instead appeals on the basis of love. And that that's something Philemon was known for. This is something that uh, 
he had a reputation for, for his faith, which overflowed into how he loved and served others. This summary in verse 7, which is one of my favorite verses in the book. I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. We all know people in the, in the congregation who, they're the kind of people you feel refreshed when you spend time with them. They just overflow in their love for Christ. And so when you spend time with them, uh, you just, you feel refreshed, rejuvenated. And, and it's the same word that, that um, or same picture, I should say, of Jesus in Matthew 11, who invited all who were weary and burdened to come to him and to find rest. Uh, and so that's, that, that was Philemon's reputation. If our faith in Christ has made us family, then that family ought to be marked by that kind of love. And, and you can even see throughout the letter all of the terms of affection and, and family relationship that Paul uses. It, it very much overshadows the language of slave-master in it. Uh, Philemon and Onesimus uh, are both called brothers in the book. Philemon's called his brother twice. They're both described as beloved. Paul even suggests in verses 15 and 16 that maybe the reason that Onesimus ran away in the first place is so that you could have him back again, not no longer as a slave only, but as a brother in the Lord. You know, a family as, as part of the family in Christ. And so, as one author puts it, Paul bases his appeal on the bonds of love and interdependence which unite believers in the Lord. He reveals what Christian love will dare to ask and the lengths to which it will go in seeking to make concrete the reconciliation which Christ effected by means of his death on the cross. How far are we going to go in taking the gospel of Jesus seriously when it comes to broken relationships within the body of Christ? Are we going to take you know, the fact that, that we who were enemies of God and rebels against God, but that the cross of Jesus was enough to reconcile us with our Heavenly Father, are we going to take that power seriously when it comes to our conflicts with one another in the body or helping one another find that reconciliation? Paul's willing to go the whole distance there. And that brings us to his, the third basis for his appeal, and that's his personal relationship with Philemon. Uh, these guys were close. They were partners in the gospel. Paul describes him as his fellow worker in verse 1 and his partner in verse 17 and talks about some life debt that Philemon owes him in verse 19. And he talks about his desire to get out of prison and come see Philemon, prepare the guest room. I'm confident that through your prayers, God's going to deliver me and I'm going to be able to see you again. Paul and Philemon have partnered together in the faith. And so Paul appeals to that personal relationship, asking Philemon to receive Onesimus back just as if it were Paul showing up on his doorstep. That's what he wants to see happen. He wants his present relationship with Philemon to be the standard for Philemon's reconciled relationship with Onesimus. Receive him 
just as you would receive me. And he's willing to make that appeal at great personal cost. Whatever Onesimus has done to wrong Paul, or excuse me, to wrong Philemon, Paul is willing to pay it out of his own pocket to make it right. Paul takes Onesimus' place before Philemon as the debtor so that Onesimus can take Paul's place. Doesn't that sound a lot like Christ, that picture? And so, so he bases his appeal on their common faith in Jesus, on their Christian love that ought to mark God's family, and on his own personal relationship with Philemon. But I think one of the things that's interesting about Paul's appeal is not only what he says, but what he doesn't say. Some of the the bases that he leaves out in his appeal. For instance, he offers no evidence or argument that Onesimus has repented of his wrong. Now, I mean, repentance is crucial, and, and that's important. Scripture talks about that many places, but it also makes a very weak basis for reconciliation. And Paul knows that. Second, he gives no guarantee that Onesimus isn't going to do it again. How many times when we're appealing to somebody to forgive us, do we load it down with promises that I, I swear I'll never do it again? Paul doesn't make those promises here. Nor does he try and give an account of things from Onesimus' perspective and help Philemon understand what was going on uh, from his side of things. So many of the criteria that we run to in trying to heal relationships are surprisingly absent here. Instead, the gospel supplies our only defense when we're in the wrong and provides the only sufficient basis for forgiveness when we've been wronged. Think about that. The only defense we have when we're in the wrong is the blood of Christ. And the only sufficient basis for forgiving someone who's wronged you is the blood of Christ. That's the point Paul's making here. Our only hope for reconciliation, regardless of what side of the conflict we're on, is the blood of Christ. Another author writes, who is to blame here or who is at fault is not a primary concern for Paul. What matters is that the gospel can reconcile those at odds with each other, even if one has a rightful claim against the other. And so... Looking at a letter like this, it it forces us to ask the hard question, is the gospel that we confess together as a family and share with the world around us, is that truly powerful enough to change our own hearts within the church when we've been hurt by one another? When we see someone who has stolen from us or slandered us or offended us or betrayed us or broken promises and, and we're supposed to be here together in one family worshiping, is the gospel really powerful enough to change our hearts and bring lasting reconciliation and peace within the body of Christ? What will it take 
for us to seek forgiveness when we have wronged someone else. To die to self, confess our guilt, come empty-handed to those whom we've offended, appealing out of humility and vulnerability, relinquishing control of the outcome, not pleading on the basis of our own merit or promises to do better, but clinging solely to the gospel of Jesus and his shed blood. What will it take for us to appeal and, and seek forgiveness when we've wronged someone? And what will it take for us to respond to that with forgiveness when that appeal comes? To release others from the debt of sin that they've committed, to cancel that, and to surrender our desire for retribution or vindication, and instead extend family love in its place. We want to hold out for revenge. That's just naturally what our hearts want to do. We want justice. We want them to be punished for what they did and for them to feel the pain that they have caused us. We add conditions to forgiveness so that we Every time they get close to the bar, we can just kick it up a notch and keep them in debt to us. And to protect ourselves from the risk of being hurt again. I mean, those are understandable responses. Those are understandable responses, especially for the world around us who who has no experience of the grace and forgiveness of God in their lives. But if we have a common faith in a Savior who has reconciled us at great cost to himself, doesn't the gospel ask more of the family of God? Doesn't the love of Christ, which we experienced in our own lives, compel us to deal differently with those who hurt us? CJ mentioned earlier the Maundy Thursday You know, the picture of the king in the vulnerable position, loving his disciples by serving them, washing their feet. Is what Christ did enough to really affect lasting reconciliation among us? Reconciliation is hard and it's costly because sin is offensive. Nowhere in this letter does Paul minimize what, o- what Onesimus did and say, you're overreacting, Philemon. Really, wasn't that big a deal. I mean, you're a sinner too. You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't minimize or downplay the nature of the offense or dilute the sinfulness of sin. The offense is very real and the pain is very real. He doesn't tell him to get over it and move on. And the reality is that trust can take time to rebuild. And repentance is necessary if forgiveness is to be genuine and true. Forgiveness is a transaction between two people where a debt has been canceled. And and without accepting that debt and acknowledging it and confessing it and turning away, real forgiveness can't happen. When Jesus says in Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And so repentance is a necessary part of that reconciliation process. We don't want to minimize that but the posture of our heart while we look for repentance 
should always be a willingness to forgive. That's the hard part. If they come to me and say, you're right, I'm wrong, I repent. Is my heart ready to cancel the debt? The shocking truth of the gospel when it comes to this reconciling effect in the body is that God asks us to forgive one another not on the basis of whether the offending party deserves it, but on the basis of our common faith in Christ, on the basis of our love that we have as a family, and on the basis of the fact that in Christ, God has forgiven us. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You, know, you among the people of God, let this be your clothing. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Here's the kicker. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. That's the basis. It's what Christ has done for us that makes it possible. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The thing that we have to take serious when it comes to conflict, reconciliation, uh, as Christians, is that for those in Christ, the debt of sin, the debt of sin has already been paid. For those of us in Christ, the debt of sin has already been paid. Not just the sins we commit, but the sins committed against us as well. Paul says in, again in Colossians that God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things through Christ. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so God in his amazing love for us. Gave his answer to sin. In the cross. That was his answer to sin. Where all of the evil of this world. And all of the holy anger of God against our sin. Were poured out on his son. Who willingly took it in our place. And it's on the cross. That we can take both the sins that we've committed and the wounds that we've received. So, so all of the hurt, the emotional anxiety, the financial fallout from having been wronged by someone, the emotional damage, the sin, the pain, the injustice, we can take all of that and fold it into the suffering of Jesus whose blood was enough to cover, yes, that too. Which frees us from the need of retribution and enables us to extend love and forgiveness instead. Sin really is sinful. But grace really is sufficient to deal with it. Both our sin before the Father and our brother or sister's sin before us. And God's answer to sin was the cross. It was good enough for the holiest thing, person that you can imagine, to forgive. By his grace, may his answer to sin be good enough for us to forgive one another and be reconciled in Christ.
And if that's you, know that you're not alone. Know that you're not the only one who's experienced that. Know that this is the kind of stuff that your elders and pastors want to help walk alongside you with. To see the gospel bear fruit in our lives in this way is such a joyful thing. And there are people in this congregation who can give great testimony to it. So keep that in mind if you find yourself in, the, in that situation. Um, the grace of God is sufficient. Let's pray.